Hey, it's Barbara Phillips with NPBO, and I wanted to give you a heads up on a webinar that we have coming up Thursday, May 16th, and it will be with a certified healthcare privacy person who has been in charge of a very large healthcare organization and their privacy compliance, HIPAA, and all of that sort of thing. And I think it's very important that all clinicians attend this one because HIPAA affects all of us. And so you can get more information about that at npbusiness.org forward slash privacy matters. And just another quick heads up after that, in June, we'll be talking with someone who has been in charge of the IT compliance to protect the organization. And so this one will be geared toward how do you protect yourself as well as your practice. And I'll be sharing more information about that later. So let's move on with the podcast. This is the NP Business Matters podcast, episode number two. On Becoming a Business Owner with Nancy DeRubo. Hello and welcome to the NP Business Matters podcast. I'm your host, Barbara C. Phillips, nurse practitioner and founder of Nurse Practitioner Business Center and the Clinician Business Institute. Today, I'm interviewing Nancy DeRubo. She's an FMP and a fellow in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And as you'll hear me talk about, Nancy was, I believe, the second nurse practitioner in the country to open up her own practice. It wasn't until an AANP conference in, I think, 2010 or 2011 that I had the opportunity to meet Nancy. And ever since that time, she's been an inspiration, a mentor, and a good friend. Nancy shares with us today her experience of starting out her practice when nobody knew much about nurse practitioners and what we could do, as well as what she has learned over the years about having a successful practice, professional involvement, ethics, and so much more. I encourage you to head over to our blog at npbusiness.com where you'll find the show notes, the links, and the resources that we discuss here today. So let's get started. So Nancy, years ago, when I was trying to figure out who started their first nurse practitioner practice in the country, because I was rather late to the game in, in some ways. But you came up as either number two or number three. So you started very early on when people had never heard of nurse practitioner-owned practices. Can you just talk a little bit about that? What was it like for you back then? Well, that was 1985 when I opened my practice called Laconia Women's Health Center. And I think like most people who want to go into practice for themselves, I wasn't happy with my current position. There were very few nurse practitioners. I think they were under 20 in the entire state of New Hampshire. And of course, now there are thousands. I don't even know how many. Um, But I was unhappy. I was working for a, a general surgeon in a small town. And I was acting as the practice manager as well as seeing patients. And he was almost always in the OR or in the ER. So I was really managing the practice. And we did have a revenue sharing plan. 
But my salary was a very small fraction of his, and I had access to all the business records. So I went to him and after seven years of working for him said, you know, I'd like a raise and here's how I can justify it. And he basically said that he talked to his wife and his accountant and they all decided that I was making enough as a nurse. And I remember those words because it changed my life. And I said to myself and my husband, who was a CPA, and I said, if I can do this for him, I can do this for myself. And that was my original motivation. I wanted to offer the type of health care that I knew I could deliver in a way that I had control over, but was also being fairly compensated for what I did. So I was working in a town that was probably 25 miles away from where I lived. So I opened up in a town that I lived What was different back then was there was a lot of resistance. Nurse practitioners were new. Nobody knew what we did. Um, I don't know how many times I had to say, what is a nurse practitioner? People say, it's not legal. You can't do that. what you're doing. And I'm like, well, yes, it is legal. And of course, New Hampshire is one of the first full practice authority states. Um, But I think what was so critical was I, I, I identified who my ideal patient was right off the bat. And I did something very unique. I didn't want to just offer gynecology because being one of the rare female providers in the area, I automatically drew that type of clientele. But I wanted to do primary care because I'm a family nurse practitioner and nobody was doing primary care for women. So by not being GYN and not being full family practice, I was trying to limit my resistance from physician groups who were not happy I was going to open a practice. So I kind of did this little quiet thing on the side and kind of was trying to stay as much under the radar, frankly, as I could. And that's how I started. I also had an advantage in that people knew me. They were willing to drive 20 minutes away to come see me. They were um, they had a taste of what nurse practitioner care was. And nurse practitioner care was I saw 12, 14 patients a day. Um, I spent half an hour, 45 minutes easily with most patients. And that was something that people at that point were still doing, you know, that at that point, maybe 10 minute office visit, which is generous compared to what people are getting now for an office visit. So, so people who experienced the type of care that I gave were willing to drive 20 miles, which in New Hampshire is not a big deal. So I, I had a base to start with, um, and, went out on my own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so, it was so different back there. I mean, there were a lot of hurdles that you can't, because didn't you tell me at one point about prescribing? You couldn't even. Yes. So, and so we, we could get third party reimbursement, but Medicare did not reimburse nurse practitioners at all back then. That didn't come till much later. Of course, that's federal, not state. But in the state of New Hampshire, I could get direct third-party reimbursement. So I didn't see Medicare patients at all in the beginning because I couldn't get paid for it. And people were not willing to pay out of pocket at, at, at in that time. Right, right. Um, it, it was with prescriptive practice in the beginning, we needed to have a physician who would just state that they had a relationship. The word collaboration, supervision wasn't used. It was very, very, very vague. So I went to a lawyer right off the bat and said, what do I need to do to comply with the law? Do I need protocols? Does somebody have to come and visit? Do they need to look at chart records? And he said, no. 
He said, don't interpret the law. If they left it vague, they left it vague for a reason. So he said, just get someone that you know to say, I, and the physician was Jerry Hamilton in Concord, New Hampshire, and he was a godsend. And he just wrote, I, Jerry Hamilton, am working with Nancy DeRubo, ARNP, um, period. And, and we put the dates down. That's all we did. And, and the lawyer said, that's all you need to do. You're in compliance with the law. At that time, the Board of Nursing instituted a formulary, which did have some restrictions, but it wasn't that big a deal. Most of us could then use this physician that we were, quote, working with and phone in prescriptions under that person's name. That was common practice at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and soon thereafter, um, we'd worked actively, and I was very much involved in my State Nurse Practitioner Association and AAMP, which was in its infancy state at that time, with Jan Towers, and working to make these things help these things get changed. Um, we were strongly motivated to be actively involved in policy because it affected us personally. Um, you know, I wouldn't be able to practice unless I could have direct reimbursement and I could have prescriptive practice. So I was very much involved. I went down and testified. I followed the bills. I called my legislators. Um, I financially supported both AANP and uh, the New Hampshire Nurse Practitioner Association. Um, and, and I think being so vested in that also helped pave the way, not just for myself, but for everybody else. So it was a a minor hurdle at that point, but certainly one to work around. Other nurse practitioners were trying to overdo it, overread the law. And like I said, using my, my team, I had, you know, a CPA, I had a, I had a banker that I worked with. I had an insurance agent that I worked with. I had the lawyer that I worked with and they gave me the expertise that I didn't have, um, so that they, they were the ones that helped to support my practice. Uh, and I learned so much. I mean, people don't want to hire a lawyer to look over things because they think it's too expensive. It saves you money in the long run and, and tons of headaches and problems. Um, I found that very, very yeah. helpful. Yeah. You, you, you know, the, I mean, we see this a lot in the Facebook group. And for those of you that are listening, we do have Nancy and I co-moderate a, a Facebook group um, for nurse practitioners in business. But one of the things that we see often is people asking questions to everybody else in the group that really need to go to their CPA, for instance. Absolutely. And, I mean, constantly, I know you and I both are just call your CPA. <laughs> Right. Call your CPA. Call your CPA. Because what a lot of people also don't seem to realize when they start talking about, oh, should I do an LLC or should I do, you know, a PLLC? What's the difference? Those are so state specific, but they also are tax structures. And you need to be working with your CPA of as far as one, what's legal for you in your state, um, what is required, but two, you know, what's going to be the best for you in the long run? And also a lot of questions we see are about 1099, 1099 oh. employees versus, so people don't understand the difference between being an employee, being an employer and being a 1099 contractor. Right. No, they don't, nor do they understand how the laws are beginning to change. Right. Um, I had done a video um I think it was last year when California had changed their laws and went to this whole ABC rule. 
which they weren't the first ones to do it, but they just have the most strict one to date in the country um, that basically says you cannot be a nurse practitioner working as a 1099 contractor for a healthcare organization that provides the healthcare services. That's basically what it says. Um, But, but you're right. And a lot of NPs have gotten into trouble, even if they don't have that restriction where they are, they've gotten into trouble because they want to hire someone on a 1099, not engage the services of a contractor. They want to hire and then they control everything that that, 1099 does, which you cannot do. Right. That's illegal per the IRS. Right. Um, And you don't want to mess with the IRS. Oh, I've been saying that for years. (laughs) I mean, you know, that's like the mafia. (laughs) Don't don't mess with them because IRS can, I mean, that can just screw you up for for a very long time, if not for life, if you mess with that. Right. One of the things that's really different that I want to talk about was technology. So I'm really dating myself. In 1985, almost nobody had computers. In fact, I remember the very first computer I bought was a leading edge Model D. And I had to drive to Massachusetts because no one in the state of New Hampshire was selling computers. Oh, my God. So I had to drive out of state to, to get the first computer. And I was just enthralled with it. But I was very careful in how I chose my technology. Um, I was a beta test site for Anthem for doing electronic claims in the state of New Hampshire. Oh, wow. And, and loved doing the, the electronic claims and found that that worked out extremely well. But mm-hmm. I never had electronic health records. And I had my practice until 2015. And I found for me in my practice, it did not make financial sense. It did not make structural or organizational sense for me to do electronic health records. And I took the ding because you get dinged 2% on Medicare if you don't have electronic records. But when I looked at and did a financial analysis, looking at a a time study and also looked at how much it would cost me to institute electronic health records, it was a bargain to take the hit, the 2% hit off Medicare payments. So So were you just handwriting all your charts? I was handwriting all my charts, but I had templates. Um, I did soap notes. So a lot of um, a lot of note taking is organizational skills. So my practice is what I called loving kisses, L-O-V, low overhead and volume and keep it super simple. So in my office, I had a very different structure. I had a small waiting area. I had one employee. And she had a decent size area. And I had one exam room that was a room that was 13 by maybe 14 or 12. It was a big room. And in that room was the exam table, um, was a changing area, was a file cabinet, was my big desk with two chairs where I did my consultation. And then the other wall was a sink cabinets where I did my lab. So I never worked with a medical assistant. I never worked with an IRN. It was me and it was my clerical person, my administrative assistant. She answered the phone. She booked the appointments. I would greet the patients. And it's so efficient for me to do this way. I only had the overhead of one room, so I didn't have duplicate and triplicate equipment. Um, Your interactions with the patient is critical. Taking somebody's weight and how they react to how you take their weight taking their vital signs, looking and reading their body language. It's not just asking someone a question. It's how did they answer it? And it's all the nonverbal stuff that you get. So I would come in. I would 
do the, the vital signs. I would do the initial interview. And then while someone was changing, I was starting to do my charting. While they were changing, as soon as they were ready, I could examine them. Nobody sat in a room wondering, when is somebody going to come in in this Johnny that barely covers you on a, on a table with paper, just sitting there waiting for the, the person to come in because they're playing tag between three exam rooms and three people. And how you can mentally keep state straight who did what, when, and who's got what, you know, it, it was just easier for me. Patients love this model. As mm-hmm. soon as they were ready, I was ready. If they were elderly, I could help them get up on the table. I could see their mobility. Um, I would do the examination. Then while they were getting dressed, I would do the lab, either, you know, prep the, the pap smear specimen to be sent out or, you know, do the lab or again, do more charting. Then as soon as they were dressed, they would sit back down in the uh, area, you know, where my, my desk was and we would wrap it up. Um, all of this was extremely efficient. And then when they left, I did my charting right then and there immediately. And as I said, I, I, ha- I knew myself and I knew my patients well enough that I had templates that I could use so that, um, if an hour later a pharmacy called or the patient called and said, I have a question, I could pull that chart and I had the information right away. So in the early days, people were sending stuff out for dictation, but it would take a week sometimes to get dictation back. Yes. Yeah. Very inefficient. I also live in a relatively small town so that people were very concerned with GYN issues and other things for privacy, with electronic records, with um, sending tapes out for dictation. Um, you can't guarantee privacy. I can guarantee privacy when it's me and one other person in the office. And that's the only people that have access to the records and the cleaning people don't even have access to the records. Everything's locked. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so my style was, was very different and people perceived when I did research and I did on patient satisfaction, um, people would say that their perception of the time that I spent with them was really much longer than I actually did because they knew they had my full attention. Even when I had a computer in my office and I used it for other things, the computer screen was not so that I could look at it or see it when I was interacting with the patient. And that's one of my biggest complaints as both a patient and a provider now is that people are treating the computer screen and not looking at patients. I, I could make faces at my provider, stick my tongue out, and she wouldn't know it because she's looking at the computer screen. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm showing my age. It's a different skill set. I, I also have to chuckle, Barbara, because I take students to, to um, low-resource countries um, at the Dominican Republic. We've gone to Nicaragua. Um, and, and when I have students that go there, of course, we don't have any electronics. And when I, I have nurse practitioner students that I was precepting in these experiences, I would say, here's a patient. I want you to do a complete physical, and I want you to do a complete review of systems. And they would be absolutely mortified. They could not do it because what they were used to doing was reading a computer screen and checking off boxes. So when I started nursing, I bet when you started nursing, the emphasis was on an individualized care plan. Each patient was an individual. Today, everything is, if it's not in the computer, it doesn't exist. And if the computers break down, God help us because everything is algorithm-based, which is recipe cookbook-based, which is the antithesis of patient-centered care. Patient-centered care to me. Yeah. I mean, a small example is I use Voltaren gel and I get it from foreign countries because it's 2.32%. You can't get it in the United States. I recently went to my provider and she said, what are you taking for medicines? The MA. And I said, I take Voltaren gel. And she said, oh yeah, it's in here. It's 1%. I said, no, I don't take 1%. I I use 2.32%. 
now this is a minor thing. And she's saying, well, it doesn't come that way. And I said, yes, actually it does. Not in the United States, but this is what I'm using. And she said, well, I can't put it in the computer because there's no way for me to put it in. I'm going to put down that you're using the 1%. So, I mean, it, it, that was just a small way of saying, I have to fit the computer. If I don't, then sorry. Right. That's it. Right. Oh. Right. And I don't know about you, but I've never had somebody who fit anything. Right. You know, it's like, you know, people come in right. and they have a list of symptoms and it's like, well, that's not in the textbooks. Right. <laughs> you know, so they've mm-hmm. never fit anything. And, um, you know, that's, I mean, I think the way that you and I learned how to do care, because we're both of the same generation, mm-hmm. um, you know, is quite a bit different than I think what people are learning now in school. I, I agree. You know, um, and, and I think that the nursing education that we had as, as nurse practitioners, and I graduated from my nurse practitioner program in 1978, so I've been doing this a long time, was geared to... The, the, the student who came into nurse practitioner programs and originally were people with a lot of RN experience. And most of us, and, and I know you were ICU nurses, mm-hmm. um, used to being in critical areas where we were allowed to think more independently. Uh, and you were expected to think. You had to yeah, think. You had to think independently. So, so that wasn't a foreign concept to us. Fast forward today, the student who's going to the nurse practitioner program is a different student. So for some people, they don't have any RN experience at all. And yet, the teaching modalities that we're using are the same. So I think that nurse practitioner education is not kept up with the fact that the students, so so either I think you need to change the program to adapt to the type of students that they're, they're, they're see, having in programs today, or they need to change the, the entrance requirements to fit mm-hmm. programs as they're being taught today. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I see so many new grads that come out feeling so insecure. Um, and I, I didn't when I graduated. I, I knew that I didn't know everything, but I was confident enough to know that what I didn't know, I got, I, I understood that I didn't know everything. And if there was something I didn't know, I knew how to get the information. And as long as I could get the information that I had a mentor, I had physical resources, um, then, then I felt confident to be able to, to practice. Right. All right. Since you talked about new graduates, let's talk about new graduates. Sure. I get, as you know, I get questions every single day via email, phone, messaging, whatever the case may be. And oftentimes I'm hearing from new graduates or even NP students who want to start a practice. As soon as they graduate. As soon as they graduate, mm-hmm. or they're a new graduate, they can't find a job, so they might as well start a practice. Mm-hmm. So I get a lot of those questions. Let's talk about that. Let let me get your opinion. Okay. I know what I tell them, and yeah. I know what I have. I mean, I've made videos on this <laughs> on YouTube, but let's hear from you. Sure, and that's that's a loaded topic, and I and I want to preface it by saying that there are probably exceptions to every rule, but. In, in general, I would say that in order to be a self-employed nurse practitioner, you need to be very comfortable with your clinical skills. Um, because for the most part, you are you are working by yourself. And remember that safety net I was just talking about. I knew what I didn't know, and I knew where to get the information. Well, if you're on your own, 
that first year or two or whatever it takes you to have that confidence in clinical skills, you need somebody to be that close to be able to help you when you need help. If you are self-employed and you are by yourself, um, you, you, you need to be able to practice safely and, and even better than just safely. You need to be providing a good quality level of care. The other part of it is, in the beginning, it takes so much energy to practice that you don't have much energy left over to also be running a business. Because unless you have previous business experience running a business, and I dare say a lot of nurses and new grads don't have that, there's a whole big learning curve right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you would agree with me that from of the, the posts that we see in the Facebook group is that people kind of have the um, idea that if I build it, they will come. If I'm a good clinician, therefore, I, I can just go out and practice and the business will take care of itself. Or um, I can delegate to somebody else and not ever have to look at what's happening with the money part of the practice. Right. Right. The billing, the credentialing, um, even even um, in our, in fact, I was mentioning before we started recording um, we do, uh, you know, for members of nurse practitioner business owner, we do a monthly coaching circle. And one of the questions came up with, uh, we talked about one of the questions that came up was, I've opened this practice and now I have no patients. And that's a common thing we see in the group. But the other thing that comes up really frequently, um, not just in the group, but in this came up again last night is I've paid all this money to get my credentialing done and it's not done. And it's been, it's nine months now. And it's like, please people learn how to do these things for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's easy mm-hmm. to do your own credentialing. Yep. You don't have to pay thousands. And wasn't there somebody in our group who said that, uh, I think it was the Texas Medical Association or somebody there was offering to do it for $5,000? Did you see that post? I don't remember that post, I mean, but I've seen others that were thousands of dollars. Um, I yeah, do all my own yeah. credentialing. Um, I did mine too. I read my own, you have to read contracts. As boring and tedious as it is, do not sign any contract with anybody unless you read it and you understand it. Right, um, right. And, and these People are basic, locked into basic business skills. Right, right, right. So, so for new graduates, in general, the answers, with exceptions, and I've always said the same thing, is no, not yet. Right. Not yet. Um, I, I think of it as getting sea legs, but getting your empty legs. <laughs> right. You know, exactly. is, is how I usually put it, because it, it does take a while um, to do that. And, you know, when we first start out, so when I did my nurse practitioner, my FNP, I had already been a GMP for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I went into a second program, but when I got out of my FNP program, I felt like a brand newbie all over again. Well, that's the other thing too, is if you want to, if you know you want to go into business for yourself, that's great. There's no issue with that, but figure out what you want to do and then make sure that you get your experience in that field. What I'm seeing is people who are geriatric nurse practitioners and they want to open up an aesthetics practice. Um, 
I see people who are in states that have to have collaborative physicians who ask questions like, well, I'm a family nurse practitioner and I'm going to be seeing, you know, family practice, urgent care type of issues, but I want my collaborative physician to be an anesthesiologist that I know. Is that okay? And, and I, I mentioned a, a couple of issues with this. One is, first of all, what does your state nurse practice act say? In, in some states, for instance, an adult nurse practitioner can't see patients under the age of 18. Or in some places, it's 15. Or some places, it's 12. Um, you also have to look at what would happen if you were in uh, a legal situation. Uh, if you get sued, one of the first things they're going to look at is, are you in compliance with everything you should be in compliance with? And you're going to have a hard time justifying, well, I'm a family nurse practitioner, and my supervising collaborative physician is an anesthesiologist. Well, how can an anes- what does an anesthesiologist know about strep throat in a... In a three-year-old. And right. how can you validate that in a court of law? Um, just as much as if you're an adult nurse practitioner and you get sued for a pediatric issue, even if your state nurse practice act says you can see kids 12 and over, well, if you have a 13-year-old that has a peritonsillar abscess and it goes bad on you and you get sued, um, you need to, the first thing they're going to do is go back and say, show me your educational preparation that gives you the experience and the skill set in order to be able to treat this patient. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, that's a huge legal problem. Even if maybe it was totally legal by your Nurse Practice Act, it may not be con- looked at in that same way in a court of law. Right, right. And, you know, that also delves into ethics, which that can be a whole nother topic and will be another topic. Yes. To talk about, um, and I want to say one thing about that. I, I don't mean to interrupt yes. you, Barbara, but there's something that, that as a nurse practitioner who started out early and was scrutinized, and when I mean scrutinized, when I was in Massachusetts, it's where I first graduated, I applied for privileges at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And one of the things that I had to do to get credential to get privileges at the hospital to be able to see patients that were admitted was I had to perform a physical exam in front of eight people that were on a committee that were going to credential me. That's the kind of standards that we were held to talk about pressure, talk about. So, so for me, ethics is a big deal because I've always tried to practice evidence-based practice. I always think about if I was going to add anything to my practice, was this a conflict of interest? Um, is, is this in the best interest of the patients? Or am I looking for another revenue stream? And what I'm seeing in the Facebook group is too many people who are trying to find ways of making money, adding revenue streams that aren't necessarily evidence-based practice, that are things that if other providers practice them would be scrutinized or maybe not considered to be ethical. And I really have concerns about how nurse practitioners as a group are going to be looked at when it appears that the major motivation for doing a particular type of business may be the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There needs to be every nurse practitioner, every business owner deserves to make a healthy salary. Absolutely. You work hard, you've been educated. And at the same time, it needs to be ethical, it needs to be legal, and you need to be doing a good job at it. And you need to be transparent. Right, right. You know, you must be, I mean, if 
believe me, if somebody needs to discover something about you for a for some legal misstep, they will find it. They will find it. Everything that goes on everywhere is discoverable. You know, your social media posts, your email posts, mm-hmm. your notes, all of that. And so I think we all need to take a step back and look at our own personal ethics and how we are um, conducting ourselves as professionals. One of the things that I did um, when I started my, so so Laconia Women's Health Center, the practice that I closed in 2015 was a primary care practice and it was a fee-for-service third-party reimbursement practice. But at the same time, as I was planning for my retirement and semi-retirement, I started a travel clinic. And I did that in 2008 part-time and that was a cash-based practice. Totally separate businesses. Everything was just just totally, totally separate. But what I did with the travel clinic was because so many people were paying cash, is that on my website, I listed all of my prices, exactly what my services were, exactly what the prices were, the fact that it was a cash-based practice. So I was totally transparent and people knew that coming in. I sold some travel products and I told people the reason I did this was because people couldn't find things. They might need them last minute. Um, And again, I was totally transparent. You want to buy these elsewhere? Of course you can. You can do however you want to do it. This is a convenience factor. These are products that I personally used. So on my website, I made it very clear what services I offered, what the prices were, what my vaccine prices were, and any other products that I was had available um, in, in my practice uh, so that people could make their own decisions. I, I got so many comments from people because they loved the fact that I had my prices listed mm-hmm. on, on my website. And, and it helped them because they said so many other practices, even if they called and asked what the prices were, they wouldn't or couldn't give it to them. Oh, really? Yep. Yep. A, a lot of places that are um, working for large institutions, large medical centers, um, the billing is just totally separate. And I, I bet you, I wonder how many nurse practitioners out there who are employees know what they're billed for, for what, what they, you know, how much their office visits are, how much their physicals are charged for, what their labs are charged for. Um, so if a patient comes in and they are self-insured, um, do you even know what you, if you order a test, do you, do you know what it costs the patient? Yeah. Do you know what a mammogram costs? Do you know what a lipid profile costs, what your immunizations cost? And I bet most, most people don't know that. And I feel very strongly that that's part of making sure that it's affordable and accessible to people is to know what things cost. Right. Right. And a lot of people don't know what is billed out or any of that. And I know, it's it's one of the things that I suggest to people, but oftentimes what they're hit with is, no, we can't share that information with you. Right. So again, as to know what your value and worth is as a nurse practitioner when you're an employee would be to have access to that information, which in my first job I did because I was the practice manager as well um, as, as the clinician. So having having that financial knowledge um, is is a critical piece. What What is your worth? How much do you financially contribute to your practice? What's the percentage of the overhead? That's important information for you to negotiate um, profit sharing, to negotiate just your base salary. Uh, and, and if you, you know, ask the question, maybe they won't share that with you, your productivity. Um, if, if your compensation is tied to your productivity, you need to be able to see your productivity numbers. So please, 
if you're an employee, ask for that. And if they say no, they say no, but at least ask and try and get as much as you can. Yeah. There are so many different aspects when it comes to the business of being a nurse practitioner. And I know whether you're self-employed or not, <laughs> whether you're self-employed or not, or employed, but just the business of we, we are right. a business. And that was certainly made clear to me in um, one of my first jobs after I finished my FNP program, I was sent to um, Buffalo, New York to work. I was, um, I was an NHSC scholar. So Essentially, I was owned by the U.S. government for a couple of years until I did payback time. And I got sent to Buffalo, New York, and I could not see patients in Buffalo at this particular clinic because I didn't have a collaborating physician. The community clinic had three different, they had pediatrics, they had OB and adult medicine. I was in, I was hired for adult medicine. The adult medicine clinic had two locum physicians. The permanent physician was finishing up her residency and would be coming. And she and I were to take over this clinic, but they brought me in to work. The thing is, is the collaborating physicians wouldn't, I mean, the locum tenens wouldn't sign my collaborating documents. <laughs> the medical director of the clinic didn't, hadn't wanted me hired to begin with. And she was a perinatologist, and she said, I can't sign your collaborative documents mm-hmm. either. And, of course, in pediatrics said, we don't know anything about adults. So we can't sign it. So, essentially, I was there for almost a year trying to – I followed a lot. I followed the NP in the GYN clinic, OBGYN clinic, and so I got my skills better with that. And I went and followed the PA and – in um, the peds, you know, I helped out the nurses, I did a lot of administrative stuff, but it was very, very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And uh, despite everything I was trying to do to find a different position to get NHSC involved and all of this other stuff. And they kept saying, well, no, doctors, I can't remember her name is coming and she'll be your collaborative physician. Well, it was almost a year before she showed up and then she almost didn't show up. But at the, at the end of it or toward the end of it, they brought in a new um, uh, clinic director, a CEO to the, this community health center. And the first thing he did is he came up to me, got into my face and said, what the hell are you doing? You are a revenue generating mm-hmm. provider. How come you're not seeing patients? And I, I mean, he was pretty blown away because the clinic was in financial um, trouble. Right. So, um, but he also could not persuade anybody to sign. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I, I left there shortly thereafter, but um, it really brought home to me just how important we are when we're employed. You know, if we're not seeing patients, then we're costing a practice a lot of money. Right. So, and for those people who are still in states that don't have full practice authority, I would urge you not to just sit back and complain, but please get involved. Get involved in your State Nurse Practitioner Association. Mm-hmm. Even if you only donate $15 to AAMP, whatever you can afford, every bit counts. The money that they use influences things on the on the federal level. They've helped me out, and I've seen them change things for the better for all of us. Um, but get involved. Make these changes. Volunteer in whatever way that you can do it. 
because, you know, small states were the early states. Was it Colorado, New Hampshire? Um, everybody oh, told us we do it. We, we did do it. We mm-hmm. did do it. And it was a lot of people who um, didn't have a, a, a lot of time or energy, but we all pitched in together and working together made some major changes. And I know there are huge obstacles out there, um, but but every state needs to be actively working to get rid of these outdated models right. that are ridiculous. Right. So I'll just put my little pitch in for that when I can. <laughs> and I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up because there's so many different ways and in places that we can go and we will go because Nancy, you will come back and we're going to do some very targeted um, discussions on all of this. But in the meantime, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way now would be to um, email me um, at derubo.nancy at gmail.com. Um, or they can find me on the Facebook group, um, certainly, which is Nurse Practitioners in Business. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Any last minute thoughts that you'd like to share? I, I think I would just start off by saying that it's never been easy to be a nurse practitioner. The challenges have always been there. They're different now. And what has helped us to survive and thrive is our ability to be flexible, to be supportive of one another, and to continue to be creative and find solutions that work for our patients and work for us. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. It's been a joy to talk with you as always. So once again, I want to thank Nancy for taking the time out today to share what she has learned and what she sees as important steps for business owners and nurse practitioners in general. I invite you to leave your comments and suggestions on our blog at npbusiness.com, where you'll also find all the show notes, links, and resources. Once again, I am Barbara C. Phillips, nurse practitioner and founder of NPBO and the Clinician Business Institute. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I'll see you in our next episode on the NP Business Matters podcast. Bye-bye now.